0: Welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist podcast for another uh, dive into our sermon from Sunday. So my name is Tyler Hurst, and I'm here with Drew Cunningham. Uh, Drew preached on Sunday from Daniel chapter 5. Drew, would you give us a uh, overview of the text and then uh, tell us what you hope people walked away with? Yeah, so Daniel 5 is another one of those texts that
1: is... A famous text. Um, People that even don't read the Bible know about this text. Uh, Maybe not as much as next week's text Mm -hmm. in the lion's den, but this is a widely known text about a hand that comes in and writes on the wall Mm -hmm. uh, in the palace in Babylon. So, just to give a a rundown of, of what happens, you've got this new king in the text named Belshazzar, and... He's different from Nebuchadnezzar who Mm -hmm. took up all of chapters one through four. So he's new on the scene. And the first thing we see is he's having this massive party with thousands of his leaders in the kingdom. And he is drinking in front of them and um, commands for the Lord, Yahweh's stuff to be brought from the temple And they defile it by Mm -hmm. drinking out of it. And then they celebrate what I call these lower G gods. Um, They drink from the Lord's stuff. And then, let's see, it says, um, verse 3, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Mm -hmm. So that happens, and um, they're living it up, laughing, partying, and God shows up uh, and writes on the wall. The human hand appears, writes on the the wall, and so Belshazzar is terrified. Um, I even mentioned in the sermon, there's an idiom in here that suggests that he lost control of his bowels, (laughs) um, his Face changes color, he wets himself, essentially, and doesn't know what to do. So he calls in his um, astrologers, the Chaldeans, the wise men of his kingdom, and they have no idea what's on the wall. Um, They can't interpret it or read it. And so he doesn't know what to do. And then this queen appears. We don't know whether it's the queen mother or maybe even his great-grandmother, but she comes in, she in a wise way, wasn't in the party. And she says, hey, don't be scared. I know this guy who Mm -hmm. used to be here, um, and he can interpret dreams, speaking of Daniel, Mm -hmm. uh, which we've seen him do twice already in the book. So she says, you need to call him. He uh, is wise, and he um, has the spirit of the holy gods in him. So she recognizes the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar before did. And um, she says, call him now. Mm -hmm. And so they do... They call him, uh, Belshazzar insults him and tries to do a power move on him and says, reminds him that he is um, one of the exiles and that he's the king, um, and tries to bribe him and says, says, hey, if you can interpret this, I'll give you a a purple cape, some bling, and I'll make you the third in the kingdom. So offers him power and prestige and um, financial reward. And Daniel says, no, I don't don't want your stuff, but I'll interpret this for you. Um, And then before interpreting it, he um, gives him a history lesson and says, Mm -hmm. hey, you need to remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, um, your father or your ancestor. Uh, Here's what happened with him, and here's how he was humbled in his pride. And then he interprets the writing on the wall, and he says, you know, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson is what's written on the wall. And he says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the plural of Parson, uh, means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then um, that night, um, Belshazzar's enemies come through the city and they kill him and the Babylonian kingdom is no more. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's now run by the Medes and the Persians. So um, what God wrote on the wall happened. And this is a story of, unfortunately, judgment, um, which is distinctly different from what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, a story of repentance versus a story of judgment. And so, you know, if I had to... Pin down what I think the main point of chapter five is. I think it's very similar to the main point of chapter four, but on the other side of it. That, you know, the main point of chapter four was the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Uh-huh. Um, the same is true in chapter five, but we're seeing the judgment side of it that God rules the kingdom of men. Um, he, you know, will not be. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of the the right word for it, but God will not be mocked. Mm-hmm. Um, they are clearly mocking God yeah. at the beginning of chapter five, and God's patient, yes, He is, but He comes in and there's swift judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, writes on the wall, it tells him the truth, and then his life is demanded from him. Yeah, um, and so I think that's the main point um, is that God will not be mocked, um, and there's a call for repentance here. Uh, For those Mm -hmm. of us reading it today, um, we should know what's happened before us. Belshazzar Mm -hmm. does not learn from the mistakes of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm -hmm. He continues on in the same things.
0: Yeah, that verse 22 is just super powerful. And you, his son, or like you said, not necessarily his uh, direct son, but maybe grandson or great-grandson, Belshazzar, uh, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this. Mm-hmm. And so just this this idea that like I mean in those days they would pass down the traditions of their fathers, and he has neglected the fact that he has this ancestor who who has was a proud, arrogant man, with by the way, probably substantially more reason to be than Belshazzar does. Because Nebuchadnezzar builds this entire kingdom, Belshazzar just inherits it. Totally. And so Nebuchadnezzar has more reason to be arrogant, and yet God confronts him uh, and humiliates him, but does so in a way that brings him to repentance.
1: Yeah, so I I listed this quote in the sermon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people learn from their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. The wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another philosopher that I quoted that says something along the lines of um, the only thing that we've learned from history is that we don't learn from history (laughs) or don't learn enough from history, Mm -hmm. something like that. And I think that's very much on display here in this text, that Belshazzar knew all of this, cognitively at least, but it didn't affect him. He didn't learn from the mistakes before him, and he didn't learn anything from the history before him. Mm -hmm. And And I think that's one of my concerns is that we might be no different in the evangelical church Mm -hmm. that we know a lot of Bible knowledge. Um, People can quote scripture to you pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, But has it changed us? Has it transformed us? Um, If it hasn't, we're no better than, than Belshazzar in this text. We know all these things. Um, You know, one thing I said is that this is Romans one before Mm -hmm. Romans one was written. Yeah. Um they knew God, but they didn't
0: honor him. Yeah. One of the things that's always struck me about the Sermon on the Mount uh is the Specifically, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uh, gives two substances by which are comparisons to his followers. And those two substances are salt and light. And one of the reasons why I've always thought that was interesting is one of the things that those two have in common, because they have very little in common. Light is based off of particles and stuff like that, and salt is like a physical, tangible thing. You can touch it. Uh, They have completely different purposes. But one thing they both have in common is they are only noticeable by contrast. Mm Mm-hmm. So like one of the things I used to tell my high school students when I would teach the Sermon on the Mount um, is uh, the best chocolate chip cookies always have a little bit of salt in them because it's the contrast of the salt that draws out the sweetness. Your tongue, even though you don't know it's there, your tongue hits the savoriness of the salt and the contrast makes the cookies substantially sweeter. And similarly with light, uh, you know, you can light a candle at noon and stand outside and it does nothing. But if you do that in the pitch black, all of a sudden you can see. And so it's, you know, those two substances are primarily enjoyable or you get the benefits of them primarily in light of contrast. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in which that's kind of what you're talking about with us as the evangelical church is we can get uh, kind of seduced into... Not necessarily the gods of iron and gold and wood, but into you know other gods which you mentioned in your sermon of of things that can seduce our hearts, and then we end up one of the tragedies of that is we end up looking just like the world, and we have yeah. nothing better to offer.
1: So specifically, um, mm-hmm. the things that I compared there were the lowercase g gods mm-hmm. of entertainment and mm-hmm. sports and money and comfort and mm-hmm. family. Um, You know, those things a lot of times get put on the shelf right next to Jesus. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Jesus gets our Sunday mornings for a couple of hours, but the other six and a half days, these things are our gods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the point that Daniel makes is that these are gods that neither hear nor see nor know. And ultimately at the end of Daniel 5, these lowercase g-gods... Cannot protect Belshazzar mm-hmm. from judgment. Yeah. They do nothing, and the same's true for us. Like mm-hmm. those lowercase G gods that we put on our shelf next to Jesus, cannot protect us from judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, only Jesus can. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. something we may be in danger of. Mm-hmm. As an evangelical church,
0: yeah, there's there's so much we can learn about this from being in the scriptures, and specifically even the Old Testament, which is so neglected in many churches today. Because when I hear a sermon like this, um, or when I hear when I read a text like this, it doesn't immediately come to mind. But when I hear your sermon, kind of call out God's or false idols that we often worship in place of God, one of the Old Testament texts that comes to mind is uh, after the ark is captured in the old Testament and God's people are defeated and the Philistines take the ark away and they send it around. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first place it goes in uh, Philistine territory is to the temple of, is it Dagon? Dagon. Dagon. Yeah. Uh, and the priests show up the next day after putting the ark of the covenant in his temple and He's on the ground (laughs) and then the, the statue of Dagon has fallen face down on the ground. And so they set it back up and they leave and they come back the next day and he's face down on the ground, but his hands and head are chopped off. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like, that's pretty, pretty startling. But you have these places in the old Testament where you have essentially like this battleground of gods. And one of the things you see is that when it's Yahweh, it doesn't matter who or how many you put him up against. He always wins.
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, one. Yeah, so
1: I think that's, like, just to key in on that mm-hmm. for a second, that is, is very much present in this text. Oh, yeah. That one day, it doesn't matter who you are, every knee will bow before mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Um, and that the contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 5 um, is stark, mm-hmm. that every knee will bow. Yeah either in redemption or in judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're meant to see. Um, that's what makes chapter five distinct from chapter four. Mm-hmm. Every single chapter in all of scripture is there for a purpose. Yeah. Um, even if it seems somewhat repetitive, like both of these guys are humbled in their pride, mm-hmm. but yet there's something different and purposeful in chapter mm-hmm. five. And it's that contrast of judgment. Yeah. Okay. Every knee will bow before God. mm mm-hmm either in redemption or in judgment. Yeah. And, you know, this is the, the dark side of it is we yeah. saw, it, we see judgment very clearly in chapter five.
0: Mm-hmm. And just thinking in terms of, um, you know, we talked about this in the last podcast, thinking about your last sermon um, with Nebuchadnezzar being humiliated, which leads to him being humbled, mm-hmm. uh, which there's a difference between those two things because you can be humiliated and still be prideful. Um, but he's humiliated, humbled, and that leads to repentance. And thinking about. Uh, n- not wanting to fall into the trap that Belshazzar falls into here, but rather wanting to actually be more like Nebuchadnezzar, but, you know, not needing to be humiliated, being more repentant to being more humble just as a knee-jerk response or a general disposition. Uh, There's a few things that stand out to me in the text, and I wonder if we could talk about them. Uh, One of which um, is you have the queen come in in verse 10, and uh, you get a couple of different unusual things that happen in verses 11 through 12. Uh, one is that she's referring to Daniel uh, both by his name, mm-hmm. which is sort of odd. So he's, he got renamed uh, after the god Be- Bel, uh, so their false god. But she's referring to him as Daniel, mm-hmm. which is, you know, his Hebrew name, which That's he's named for. A
1: god-given name, yeah. not a,
0: a name given by kings. That, right. Yeah. Right. She's acknowledging that. But she also has the pagan concept of Nebuchadnezzar pre-conversion, where she's saying the spirit of the holy gods, lowercase g and plural, uh, are in him. And so I think of this as just those two things in connection are really interesting, where there's still this element of honor in terms of recognizing his true identity as being found in Yahweh, but there's also this element of not really understanding who he is. And so the knowledge of who Daniel is and who his God is has degraded from Nebuchadnezzar to now the queen uh, doesn't quite grasp who he is or the God he worships and the king never even heard of him. Mm -hmm. And so I just wonder in terms of uh, as we think about, one of the ways in which we can model our humility uh, and our repentance is being people who pass on the faith and making sure that when we're telling stories uh, to our kids or to the next generation, uh, we're not telling stories where we're the hero. Right. right? But we're telling stories about God. Right. Yeah, so she comes in and, you know, uh,
1: it's— there's lots of of debating questions on whether she— actually understands monotheism or not, mm-hmm. but there are some things that she clearly does understand that, you know, one that, that Daniel's God is holy, mm-hmm. um, which Belshazzar clearly does not, or he right. wouldn't have done what he did with the God's things. Mm-hmm. Could you define holy really quick for us? Yeah. So set apart, mm-hmm. um, completely other, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, there's, there's a reverence, mm-hmm. uh, for who God is. And, you know, one of the things that Belshazzar clearly does not get um, is that he can't just have God in his hand. Right. He thinks he owns Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Um, she sees something about Daniel's God that's holy. And mm-hmm. if you understood that, that God's set apart mm-hmm. and separate and different um, and righteous, completely righteous, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be doing what Belshazzar did. Right. Um, and and so in, in the sermon I, I talked about that about how in Exodus 19 uh, before they go up the mountain to get the the law
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, God tells them to consecrate themselves to prepare and do not even touch the mountain or you'll die.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's a reverence for God's holiness right. there. Um, Uzzah mm-hmm. in in Second Samuel I believe mm-hmm. it is. Um, You know, the ark is going and the ark represents God's presence and his holiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ark starts to topple and they're not supposed to touch it Mm -hmm. um, out of reverence for God's holiness and Mm -hmm. and set apartness. Well, the ark starts to topple over and Uzzah reaches out and touches it. Mm -hmm. God strikes him dead. Yeah. When, uh, you know, one of the the points I made was that seems kind of harsh of God, Mm -hmm. but it's a wrong understanding of God's holiness. Right. Um, Uzzah thought that. His hand was less dirty than the ground that the Ark was going to fall on, mm-hmm. wrongfully. Right. And so, understanding God's holiness um, also helps us to understand our unholiness, that we're mm-hmm. different from Him. Mm-hmm. And so, that's that's something that, even in a small way, the queen seems to understand or get it. Um, Belshazzar doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I think that's we're meant to see that in the text, that... There's something different about this queen, Mm -hmm. um, and she
0: has wisdom where other people in the palace don't. Mm -hmm. I I find it really interesting, too, from her perspective, uh, just in terms of for us as Christians, uh, even though she's forgotten aspects of who Daniel is and uh, the king does not know who Daniel is, they both find wisdom praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is one of the things I find just so fascinating because I've been in a lot of settings where I'm formally teaching the Bible to Mm -hmm. non-believers. So I used to, prior to to being one of the pastors of this church, used to be a high school teacher at a Christian school, but somewhere in the realm of 50 to 70% of my students were not Christian, uh, explicitly so in many cases. And one of the things that I found always to be true is when we did our unit on the Sermon on the Mount, I would always ask a non-Christian to give me the ethical case for where Jesus is wrong.
2: Hmm.
0: So just go through the Sermon on the Mount and just find the place where you think he's wrong. Because, I mean, quite frankly, one of the tests for or against his divinity would be if he said something wrong, I mean, I've said things wrong, you've probably said things wrong. Whoever's listening to this has probably at some point said something wrong, not necessarily lied, but mm-hmm. just been inaccurate in the facts or misjudged a situation. Um, but so I just said, hey, just go through the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the longest speeches we have about Jesus and just tell me where he's wrong. And the only thing the non-Christian can usually come up with is like, well, I think it's unrealistic to say if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. That that standard seems too high. And just go, okay, we'll just realize that like, Your issue is that you think he set the ethical standard higher than it should be. Not that his ethical standard is actually wrong. Right. Because you can't tell me that the world would be a better place if we didn't live that way. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that's
1: fascinating about this text too. Um, Mm -hmm. That Belshazzar, Mm -hmm. uh, his immediate impulse, whenever the, the writing's on the wall, is to bring in the wisdom of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, he brings in the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the enchanters, the wise men, um, and they strike out. they yeah. whiff. Um, but yet Daniel, this 80-year-old man at this point, mm-hmm. who we meant to see as kind of weak, mm-hmm. uh, comes in and correctly interprets it mm-hmm. and speaks this word of, of judgment. Uh, over the king, yeah, who is supposedly powerful in this story,
0: mm-hmm. and there's I think, a massive foreshadow here, by the way, to a text you're going to preach on in a couple of weeks with Daniel chapter seven, right? And the, the powerfully described beasts who represent these kingdoms, and the frailly described son of man,
1: absolutely. So, mm-hmm. you know, the just speaking of wisdom and how Mm -hmm. the world understands wisdom and how the Christian worldview and scripture understands wisdom um, are two very different things. And Mm -hmm. and that's, I brought that out that in first Corinthians, um, the end of first Corinthians one and the beginning of first Corinthians two, God has shamed the wise of this world um, and brought lowly the things of this world. And um, yet uses the weak things of this Mm -hmm. world. And, So I think that's important for us to understand, even in this text, that the quote-unquote wisdom of this world is shamed and brought low in this text, and someone that everyone would have seen as weak comes in and has true wisdom and truth.
0: Yeah, and I think that ties back to the point you made about Uzzah, um, which I thought you you framed that so well in the sermon, the idea that he reaches out to stop the ark from touching the ground because he's wrong in this assumption, but his assumption is my hand is cleaner than the ground it's going to fall on. And ultimately what he's done is he's misjudged the dirtiness of sin. Right. And so he reaches out to touch it. And one of the things that I think that that makes that really interesting is the assumption is the, the normal things of this world. Because dirt is just... I mean, Genesis 2 says that man was made from the dirt in a sense. So it's like... But there's nothing sinful or wrong about <laughs> dirt. It's just dirt. It's just right. part of the created right. order. But there's something wrong in Uzzah that makes his hand—it actually would have been better to let the ark fall or just to see what God did. Maybe he God would have miraculously saved the ark from falling. But the ground itself has nothing in it that would cause, like, the earth wasn't going to cease to exist. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't
1: want to chase this rabbit trail <laughs> completely right now, but I, I think— there's a a principle there that we would do well to heed Mm -hmm. that in that situation, um, you know, Uzzah seems like he had good intentions, Mm -hmm. Um, but yet God had a standard. Yeah. And so there's something specifically that God commanded that Uzzah thought would be okay to just do what he wanted to do because he had good intentions. Mm -hmm. And so my point is, and the rabbit trail that I don't want to chase is This has so much import for uh, a topic that we talked about a couple podcasts ago with the regulative principle. Mm -hmm. Do we get to do in worship what we want to do as long as we have good intentions? Yeah. Or are we bound by what God says? Mm -hmm. Um, We would say the latter, Mm -hmm. that we're bound by what God says we should do in worship. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't get to do whatever we want to as long as there's good intentions.
0: Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the just normal, earthy uh, aspect of the Christian faith. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is so fascinating is often in Christianity, it's these, you know, just normal elements, uh, just the dirt which God makes into man. That, uh, and, you know, Jesus showing up as a lowly carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's often these things that that God designs intentionally that we overlook, Right. Yeah.
1: So one other thing that mm-hmm. I want to hit um, as we're running low on time, mm-hmm. but that I, I don't want us to miss is throughout, you know, the, the end of this text, uh, Belshazzar thinks that he can basically buy his way out of judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that very clearly um, we're meant to see in this text that you cannot buy your way out of judgment. He can't get out of the writing that's on the wall Mm -hmm. by giving Daniel a purple robe and bling and power in the kingdom. Um, But so many people in our world think that this is true Mm -hmm. that, yeah, I've done some wrong things, some things that, you know, whether they would say it this way or not, some things that deserve judgment, but I can get my way out of it by Mm -hmm. doing enough good deeds or giving enough to the poor or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is and i I want to make sure we don't miss that in this text that that's one of the main points is that um, judgment cannot be God cannot be bought out yeah um, and I, I want us to understand that that you know that this is the truth of the gospel that you know we can't buy our way out of judgment every single one of us has deserved mm-hmm. God's complete and just wrath and judgment on us but only through trusting in Christ and him alone that we can be saved and that we can, um, basically uh, allow Christ to take on that judgment for us. Uh, Belshazzar was rightly, as I said earlier, terrified Mm -hmm. in the presence of God. One day, every single one of us will stand before a holy God in in judgment. Mm -hmm. And there's only two types of people. On one side, there's people who are are sinners who will be condemned. And on the other side, there's people who are sinners who will not be condemned because they've trusted in Christ and they're clothed in his righteousness. And so, if Belshazzar's reaction to the presence of God is any indication to us, um, in that moment, you are not going to want to stand there unclothed um, in Christ's righteousness. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know who listens to this podcast, but um, I, I want that to be clear: that um, turn to Christ, turn from sin, trust in Christ, be clothed in His righteousness, because judgment is coming, and uh, it's only through Christ that we can be saved. And so, uh, if you ever have questions about that, we would love to talk to you more about it. If you have Christian friends, they would love to talk to you about it, about what it means to repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, just before we go to resources uh, in our service, we uh, read John 1, uh, verses 12 through 14. But "But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And goes on to talk about how we've received grace upon grace through him. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this wasn't something we could do, uh, and it wasn't something we could purchase. It needed to come from God. Mm -hmm. It's a good word to end on. So with that, why don't we turn to uh, maybe a couple of resources that would help people go deeper uh, in this study.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm going to mention a book. Um, There's a better resource that Tyler's going to mention, but uh, it's by a guy named James Hamilton. Um, and it's called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And uh, this isn't really a book that's meant to be read cover to cover. Some people do, but uh, I, I, use it, in seminary. <laughs> I use it more as a reference. And uh, the main point of, of this book is that God's glory in salvation through judgment is a thread that runs cover to cover in Scripture. And uh, I think that's true in this, you know, in our text in Daniel 5, we very much see that as true, that God gets glory in salvation through judgment. Um, we, like I said, every knee will bow before God in either redemption, uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, or through judgment, like Belshazzar. And so um, God receives glory mm-hmm. from both. Um, in this case, we see God as completely just and upright in Um, defending his own glory and his own honor. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he is glorified even in judgment here. Um, So I highly recommend that book as a resource. Um, There's a great scripture appendix to it, so you can literally look up how this theme um, fits into every book of the Bible.
0: And so that book is based off of a discipline we talk a lot about on this podcast and in our church, which is biblical theology. And so, what that leads us to do is we recommend this little tiny purple book titled Biblical Theology, uh, written in the Nine Mark series by Rourke and Klein. But um, <clears throat> in order to avoid throwing too high of a page count at you guys, uh, one thing that is really helpful engaging in biblical theology, and even in this idea of salvation through judgment, is there are two really excellent biblical theologians, uh, including James Hamilton or Jim Hamilton, who authored the book Drew just recommended, who do a podcast uh, titled Bible Talk, and. What they're doing is they're going through the Pentateuch and just showing how themes of the Bible, uh, beginning in Genesis, kind of stretch throughout the entirety of Scripture, and thus using other passages in Scripture, we can understand a little bit better what's taking place in Genesis. And in they have an episode on Genesis three twenty through six eight. And one on Genesis 6, 9 through eleven thirty two, And in those two episodes, the idea of God's salvation through judgment come up a bunch because one of the first places we see it is that theme begins very early on in the book of, in the book of Genesis, uh, right after the curse in which judgment is pronounced, but that judgment also carries the proto-evangelion or the first gospel. And then that uh, salvation through judgment is then shown in a major way in the story of no Noah's salvation uh, on the ark uh, through the flood, God's judgment upon the world. Uh, And so I highly recommend those two episodes, but that podcast just in general is fantastic to go back and listen to, and you'll see the book of Genesis in a whole new light.
1: The other couple books I'd recommend, and this was on one of the rabbit trails we went on, so it's not a main point, but we use the word evangelical several different times in this podcast. and. There's a little book by Carl Truman called The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And there's a newer book that just came out by Thomas S. Kidd called Who is an Evangelical? Um, if you're interested in what we mean by that word, and maybe more importantly, what we don't mean by that word, uh, those are two really good books. Uh, people use the word evangelical to describe a wide, wide range of people. And so when we use it, we're defining it very specifically specifically. Um, And maybe we'll do a whole podcast on that someday. Um, But those are two good books if you want to know what we mean by evangelical. So with that, we are done for the day. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening, and we will see you again next week.
0: Thanks a bunch. I hope you enjoy your week.